0: Classicism and Conversation is brought to you by the Institute for Classical Architecture and Art. Stay tuned for future episodes of new topics and new themes for Season 2, as we study classicism from perspectives we might not ordinarily see. You can listen to episodes from our inaugural season by visiting classicist.org or your favorite streaming app. On this episode, we're asking 20 questions of some young professionals. This conversation was recorded in April 2020. Just weeks into the global pandemic known as COVID-19, we hope you enjoy this longer form podcast.
1: So why don't we do introductions? I think a lot of people know some, I don't think everyone knows everyone. Kellen, why don't you go? Yeah, sure. And I'm Kellen Krause. I work
0: for Historical Concepts in New York City. We're a Southern-based company, but we have a little outpost up in Manhattan. I know a lot of these people from Notre Dame. I was classmates with Rodrigo and Mike uh, graduated a year ahead of us in the urban track, all three
2: of us, Christina and Whitley. Hey everyone, I'm Dave Chesrone. I work for a place called N-Architects in Brooklyn. I've been one of the project managers there for about nine months.
3: I'm Christina Mosco. I went to Notre Dame with Whitley. I work at Ferguson and Chamomian. Mike and I are the co-chairs of Plinth. And I'm in Dumbo right now.
4: I'm Carl. I work in a place called Bayes Stagerberg Talks. It's BSD architecture and it's a small firm. And our office used to be in Dumbo, actually, but we moved up the street to J Street. And I haven't been there in a month. I also wear shorts to work every day, which is great now. And I know Mike from the University of Miami. And I did not go to Notre Dame, obviously. went to the GSC.
5: Oh! <laughs> I love it. <laughs> all right, Robert. Hi, I'm Robert Kadarian. I am a real estate agent at Cockpit. I'm based in New York, um, Manhattan. I'm currently I'm in my apartment in Highland. In uh, real estate, I was at Curb where I wrote about historic architecture. I don't contribute to Curb, but I had a column about all different types of kind of like historic residential architecture. And my Instagram is all about kind of New York real estate history and urban history i think i'm the only non-architect
1: in the group probably are you're going to need to balance us out i feel like that's going to be super important here so what's your
6: instagram account
5: it's called not enough payers which used to be menswear back in the day and now it's all about gold houses and basically co-ops and stuff like that i mean i mean the stuff that all every one of you worked on The Um, every transition from menswear to old houses. All right, Mike.
7: Hi everyone, I'm Mike O'Neill. I know Mike from University of Miami. I also went to GSD. I do uh, a little bit of architecture and urban design at Fire Blender Bell. I also live in Harlem.
6: Hello everybody, my name is Rodrigo at Montenegro. Um, it's a mouthful, I know. I am originally from Guatemala and I'm currently living and working there after doing grad school at Notre Dame with Kellen and Mike. I worked in New York City for about four years at Ferguson Shimamian, so I used to work with Christina. I'm an architect here working for a small firm called Estudio Urbano. We do a lot of residential work, but mostly urban design projects
2: in Latin America. It's pretty cool. Hi, my name is uh, Brent Buck. I uh, lead a small studio in Brooklyn named Brent Buck Architects. I find myself saying my name many, many times. (laughs) It's nice to meet all of you. I went to Yale for graduate school and worked for 10 years in the studio of Todd Williams and Billy Chin. We are uh, currently in Connecticut, so nice to meet all of you.
8: Whitley, Esteban, I'm not going to say where I went to school. I run the studio at Roman and Williams presently. I'm normally based in Brooklyn, but over the holiday weekend, drove to Florida. So I'm now in the panhandle of Florida where I grew up and where the beaches are closed, but uh, no vacation rentals, but luckily that means an empty condo that we can inhabit and isolate in. And yeah, that's my situation now.
1: Man, everyone. Knows me at least a little bit to organize it. But I went to University of Miami undergrad with Carl, Dave, and Mike. And then did MD grad school with Kellen Rodrigo, Grad the grad program. And overlapped a little bit with Christina and Whitley. Although I didn't really know him that well there. Like Christina said, run the uh, PLINT program with the ICAA, which is young members program of the ICAA. It's pretty cool. And I work for GP Shaper Architects. But yeah, anyway, so I'm really glad you guys were all interested in joining me here. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Talk a little architectural shop. I started out the last one with a question, and I had a lot of questions last time, which I realized were completely unnecessary because you put 10 architects in a room and you'll talk for 10 hours. It's a pretty easy thing, but a little kickoff thing. Why not? I figured since we're all quarantined here, there's something about the whole shifting world that we're finding ourselves in. But basically, at some point, we'll find ourselves back in the real world. And almost certainly, this real world will look completely different in terms of economic, social interaction, the list goes on. What is one positive way architecture will be different or one negative way? How do you see things shifting in our joint landscape, which is the architectural built environment?
5: When you think how architecture will be different? Do you mean how new buildings will be built differently? Or do you think in the immediate aftermath, how architecture could help if there will be certain elements of architecture that will try have a newfound appreciation yeah, in this COVID world? I think it could be anything you want to take it
1: away to, but I think personally, in some way, everything is becoming more digital. Right now, we're on the Zoom call when we would have been in person before. So in this way, the digital medium is replacing what used to be a physical interaction. So architecture is inherently a physical medium. So how will this physical medium adapt, maybe is a better way to put it, in the digital new digital world? And I don't really have a good answer, but there is all sorts of there's VR things happening out there, which is sort of an, an easy one to kind of think about uh, a digital representation of what you usually physically see in front of you. There's a lot of time to think these days. And I feel when we get out into the real world and we're done thinking, there's going to be a new map in front of us in a lot of ways. Thinking about it,
6: both the firm that I work in in right now and the one that I used to work in, neither of them would allow most employees to work from home. And uh, now they don't have much of a choice. (laughs) So. From a personal level, this is obviously a very vague thing to say, but it's a little bit easier for me to negotiate whether or not I come into the office and manage vacation days, which is a big thing for me. From a very vague perspective, (laughs) it's also forcing my 50-year-old boss to actually use a computer and use digital tools. I'll send them over drawings and he's being forced to print stuff out. By himself, mark them up, take good photos of them, and I'm hopeful he will get an iPad with an iPad, an Apple pencil or something, so that he can actually scribble correctly. But I, he's he's starting to be open to the idea, and I think that's going to be very positive, th- moving things forward. Sometimes getting an answer from your boss can take forever, but I think once they, once they figure out how to how to work digital mediums, they'll be able to.
2: Move things along much more quicker. Yeah, I'd like to piggyback on that sentiment about, I mean, I spend a seemingly a disproportionate amount of my day now marking up PDFs and drawings and things like that. And I think one of the things that this isn't, and this is both a positive and a negative, but maybe I'll see it as a positive that it forces me personally to give very specific feedback and a very direct feedback Yes, um, in a more timely manner, because I know if I don't, people aren't being as productive and I think the drawback of that is that it doesn't allow sort of a more fluid conversation, which is what we have in the office. But at the same time, I think people have appreciated the sort of directness of, you know, no, it's it should be this size or this color or that detail, or let's head in this direction, and it and it forces a real intention with them with the marks and the thought, which is a challenge for me. What we've also seen in our studio is a little bit of a, a positive thing with our clients in that we actually see. I mean, not physically, but we see their faces more than than sometimes we would have been in the past. People have more time on their hands, and so they're and they're more apt to have a have a video conference than they are to maybe meet that's on a job site or something like that. So there's been there's been a, certainly a couple positives in the situation, and hopefully those relationships continue to grow and develop. Us uh, hopefully it transitions to a place where that happens in person. I can totally see parallels, both in terms of of Getting to know your consultants on a face-to-face basis and and ironically, having a more human connection with, with, with more people from afar is, is one kind of positive takeaway on, on workflow. And I would, looking back, I've definitely struggled with specifically in someone who's still learning. The other day, I think I, I told some of these guys about it. I got, Hey, can you set up this detail page of something? What I got back was so wrong in so many ways. Oh, you really need to be kind of shown how to do this. But then it was now we have to kind of reconfigure all of our tools for how to do that.
4: But the, the complete opposite. So our office, we have a project we're working on that's in Revit. And I've never used Revit before. And so I'm literally learning on the fly. We have a deadline three months. And what I find sort of the, the best part about this digital world or this isolationism is if I have a question I can quickly chat somebody. Everybody is sort of available at all times. So you can quickly engage and get an answer where it might not be that accessible if you're in the studio because there's meetings going on, people are working. It's a different seems that is one positive thing. But at the same time, I do I kind of met being in the office and one, the not having your office in your living room, but also being able to make that distinction between work and home. The collaborative studio environment is something that I haven't seen very well recreated through Zoom or, or Google Hangouts or whatever it is. It doesn't have the same feeling, even though you can change your screen and you can share your screen, you can do all these things. It's not a replacement at the, the crux of this issue is there's. We have all these digital band-aids, but there's no replacement for the physical environment. And I think how that physical environment is going to change is really interesting.
1: Yeah, you can only replicate it so much. You can't recreate it totally. You can only have a call where you're all on separate screens and you can see everyone at once, but you're not sitting around a conference table or in a living room or whatever. There's no yeah. way to fully replicate that, at least at this point.
5: All of this, I mean, that we're all getting used to now is, Having our entire lives in our home and kind of using space in new ways and experimentalizing kind of spaces in different yeah. ways. And if people will value walls more, maybe also outside the office, I want a beautiful spread. I don't want a huge room that you do everything in. So I, I kind of hope that it that something changes. But I feel people would be inherently uncomfortable now. With an open floor, uh, with an open uh, office plan, because I think people have anxiety now about being so exposed to other people.
3: Well, in a home setting, if people are going to be working from home more, so many homes, every HGTV house is an open floor plan. That's really <laughs> working. at My firm actually brought it up on our week a weekly call now, saying that. People are going to value their home office even more in our designs. And we're going to have to think even more about the layout of these offices that will allow for better video chats and conferencing.
1: Yeah. The way clients think about their home offices after this is going to be so much more nuanced and in-depth and personal. And they're going to want their cameras a certain place, or they're going to have such a better like, visualization of what they want it to be. From this month long period of this. So as much as I also dislike open
7: offices, I will say one thing about them, which I'm kind of missing. I think it's important not to go too far away from is you learn a lot by overhearing other people work. That's totally true. I'm not disagreeing that people might shy away from it in the future, but I also think that could be a mistake. There's definite benefit in
1: an open office with options for privacy. Right, exactly. A conference room. My office is organized in an interesting way that I didn't have any part in it at all, but I think it's really nice in that there's groupings of six-person pods that are separated by walls that have clear story windows above. So light goes through, visually you can see through, but sound really doesn't travel that well. Even if it's pretty quiet, you can have a conversation in your pod um, and not hear it in down the hall, but you're still picking up by osmosis what... A project manager, studio director, even a draftsman anyone could be saying something here that you wouldn't have heard if you're in a cubicle or whatever. So yeah, there's totally positives being close and open.
2: I'm working on an office for a landscape architect right now. That's one with my second project, and, which is ironic because the entire process of design has been remote. We're all fantasizing about getting back together in this giant office. And saying, <laughs> Here's your main circulation path. Everybody's going to hang out right here. <laughs> you switch, it's kind of like, here's your main germ and virus. This is where everybody's going to hang out in one person's
1: pods. Step into your bubble at your workstation and that's how you sit there. Is that what it is? Instead of a coat room, it might be like a disinfecting room. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
5: Stepping
1: into a space station, you got to disinfect or whatever. Maybe it needs, maybe it needs to be a new program on yeah.
2: it's your, your vestibule. Well, I think it could also have. We think of it in terms of our studio, but having spoken to a lot of contractors, it seems some of them are actually trying to develop some various protocols, obviously for the near term of getting things up and running. But I wonder if this also has some type of impact in terms of how job sites are organized and if that somehow is a way and a means to to further protect everybody from each other, but to maybe limit common flu or things like that as we move forward. But I think that'll be an interesting thing to see and what types of systems are put in place in these types of arenas to try to figure this out. Before my uh, job was shut down, one of their strategies
7: was shift work to lower the density on site and it actually helps things move a little smoother from a very practical perspective, not from a health perspective, but from a job like organizational perspective that helps as well.
2: New York City is allowing right now single people, one person on every job site supposedly and. Truth be told, one of our job sites there's one plaster guy who's continuing to work doing <laughs> plaster work, and he's making <laughs> an incisive progress. probably and, so, and absolutely loving, and he's a loner to begin with. He's his own little animal, but crazy guy. But I think that I think that is an interesting thought to, to see uh, how how job sites and how contractors are job sites if so there's a more efficient way to do it.
0: What do you think's going to happen to cities long-term with more people working from home and telecommuting? I would think that even though there's a huge draw for Sheriff city and other big metropolitan areas, there's going to be a lot less people down the road that maybe feel the need to stay in a big city if they can work for a yeah. well-to-do company, get a good paycheck, but not have to deal with the high cost of living. I mean, it might not work for every job, or if there's a concentrated market. I, I would gather that more of our cities that are second tier, third tier will start to take more of the growth, and New York and
4: Chicago and L. A. will not grow nearly as fast. I kind of see that as one of the unfortunate repercussions of this. It's, I think that the optically everybody views density, at least in this country, views density with this idea of people living on top of each other, which yes they do, but the the idea that it's this this bastion of, oh, if there's a pandemic, it's ground zero and it's but that's really half of the story. But I think what a lot of people are are thinking is that it's better to move to the suburbs. It's better to be sort of isolated and, and separated instead of living on top of each other. And in the short term, yeah, I think it kind of makes sense if you want to get out of the city. But in the long term, it doesn't seem like a, a very sustainable growth model. Second and third tier cities, if they start becoming now more populated, it's, it's the sprawl problem all over again. It's not, it's not really like anything's changed. It's sort of the focus has been on primary big cities and people moving to these cities. And I think that if while they're, the people may, the populations of second tier cities may start to grow. There hasn't been really a paradigm shift there and there hasn't been any recent development. So what will happen is it's going to become sort of more of the same of suburban growth, strip mall, that sort of development. And I think that there is an opportunity there. Maybe it's not necessarily living in a big city and having density, but there's there might be something, some sort of middle, middle of the road, maybe a more nature-oriented neighborhood, or or things where you can be isolated, and you, but you can still have some sense of community, and you're not totally. It's not a rural area.
1: That's the Emerald Necklace stuff. That was a public health, public health move. Yeah, Chicago in the late 1800s. But I mean, there's there's all sorts of benefits to density that happen. Regularly with healthy walking lifestyles and the social interactions that happen all the time. And then there's the downside of during a pandemic. Yeah, you're super close to people and you take public transit and there's lots of issues there. But I don't think people are going to throw out the, throw the baby out of the bathwater, hopefully. But <laughs> I think it could be a really good benefit to these second and third tier cities, these Rust Belt cities that are already seeing a little bit of they could be because people can live in those cities, but still work in a, a major, metropolitan area like new york chicago or la i mean that seems like a positive to me
5: yeah i don't know if there'll be so much going from city to city as i do i i agree that there may be more focus on the suburbs because i feel essentially as millennials have been getting older they have been avoiding the suburbs because the suburbs were kind of built for a certain generation with certain values and what millennials are interested in are more urban amenities, walkability, public transit. I think that there may be a shift away, away from the immediate city. Maybe people will say, I don't need to live in New York. I don't need to live in Manhattan, but I could make it work from any of these areas within an hour of Manhattan. And I do wonder if the infrastructure of those surrounding communities will be, I don't know if it will be like from hot spot to hot spot from like, New York to a second-tier city or New York to a third-tier city, but it'll be more spreading outwards, and those, those towns will then change and shift, and we'll see interesting things happening there. I wonder if the generally communities outside of New York, uh, like Cold Spring and Hudson and those areas are going to, or those towns are going to see new activity or different activity. Or the neighboring town, Athens, across the river from, from Hudson, which is frankly super depressed. The beautiful architecture. Cause I mean, the Hudson yeah. already is, if you want to spend like over a million dollars on a townhouse on uh, Warren, you can. So it's not super affordable anymore. But Athens across the way, if you want to buy at plate for $300,000, go for it. I mean, I think those are,
2: those are really wonderful sort of macro thoughts. I think in, in New York, I'm always, it's remarkable to me. When I walk around the city and I look at up at balconies of hundreds of thousands or hundreds of thousands of balconies, and I see are uh, so uh, those are appreciated, it seems. And I think also when you look at the fly over New York and Google and satellite view and Google Earth, or if you've ever planned a rooftop deck, you look across brownstone Brooklyn, and there's so few rooftop landscapes. And I wonder if one impact of all of these things is that people are gonna to start to look at some of those spaces, those outdoor spaces that are connected to their living space to more fully take advantage of some of those opportunities and uh whether building codes allow for some of that or not, I don't know. But I can't we haven't been in New York, but I can't imagine it would be very, very difficult to be in New York with a child or two children or alone. Uh, with, with somebody or yourself and just be in an apartment and not being able, able to go outside and walk down the street. So I think that those those spaces, and I think there's lots of them, are amazing opportunities for, for architects, landscape designers, et cetera, et cetera. Great point. Yeah,
1: access to fresh air. I mean, that's so critical now. If you're cooped up in an apartment, how do you get your fresh air? It's
3: great that all those amenity buildings with rooftops have closed all
1: of them. Oh, really? Really? Yeah.
3: Because they don't want staff having to constantly clean it.
1: You uh, like, <laughs> know, space where you interact with people too, right? It
3: has to be private.
5: I kind of find it to be funny how all the all the fans get filled into New York and kind of deprioritized personal apartment square footage yeah. for the yeah. tricked out amenity spaces. Now, all of the amenity spaces have shut down at the time when theoretically it was the show time for all those amenity spaces. But now they're all kind of shut down because she wants to be sharing the space with every resident in the building. So, there's a downside of the super
1: large apartment buildings that are being built in these new builds in Manhattan and Brooklyn, I mean, they're thousand person new build buildings that have these huge amenity roof decks and huge amenity gyms and all that. But if you had smaller buildings that were built new and you had the root decks right on top of your brownstone or whatever that was shared by four units or whatever it was, I think it's a lot easier to maintain social distancing and do whatever you need to do to stay at a safe, to maintain uh, cleanliness and sanitize it when there's not a thousand people that there. there's only eight or 15 or something like that. It's a different, totally different game and it's kind of a game of scale at that regard. So if we're talking about amenities, I,
6: I had the thought just now about The city-wide amenities like theaters and movie theaters, those are going to start disappearing or have to be retrofitted because nobody wants to sit next to somebody for three hours to listen to a concert, even if it's the Met Opera or going to watch the newest movie.
7: Do you think that that is going to be the function of how long this drags out for as far as people's patience? I feel like if it resolves in the next six months, then everything could go back to normal. So if it lags on for a year or two, people might start moving away from dense urban areas. And Talking
8: about the human race, sorry, but if you look at war, if you look at all of the conflicts and things that we have not learned from, I don't believe that the reaction is going to be quite so drastic on the environment. And I don't know if that's a delusionally optimistic point of view or an incredibly pessimistic one. I'm not sure which category that falls into. I I just have to I mean, look, we really have not learned how many other gradistians and, you know, the course of civilization, all these funny experiments we keep running. And I have to believe and people are still gonna want to eat together. People are still gonna want to listen to music with groups of people that they don't know everyone that belongs in that group. And I think there might be some models in particular Asian nations and how they responded to certain things after some of the, you know, sort of smaller but also, I mean, they were total total chaos in their work. I don't think there were immediate vaccines for the avian flu or for SARS, for all of things. definitely responded at societies and definitely patterns of behavior and social interaction in those environments changed. At the end of the day, there's still humans who just wanted to be together and consume things together. So I, maybe I'm having this emotional reaction, rejecting it out of that response that I have, but I hope it doesn't come to that.
0: I think people still crave community, right? That's why people live in urban centers. That's why people like to live in these TNDs even in the country that are, let's have a porch so we can talk to people walking down the street. People are starting to return to not being so isolated as much. So I kind
1: of also see it as going back to the way things were. I think in hopefully a safer way with maybe better sanitization habits and cleanliness and all that, but Once we're a year out from this COVID thing and there hasn't been another pandemic or two years, three, I mean, the the human memory, I think, is ultimately relatively short.
5: Something that I find that that I've kind of been thinking about is a couple of days ago, I posted a question on Instagram saying, we're all spending more time in our apartment. How do you feel about your apartment now? Do you think that... Do you had recognized weaknesses that you didn't know? Did you realize that you lived in the apartment that's perfect for you all along? Do you value other things now? And the one thing that everybody said they needed more of was basically light and air. And it was consistent across, it didn't matter, the, the majority of my following is in New York, but it spans all over the globe. And everybody was saying light and air to some extent. That to me that I've been thinking about is how will that impact things? Will the people that inhabit these buildings—they may not all be architects—but were answering my my question, But the people that will be using the buildings, and those there are the people that will be hiring the architects. Will be the people that will be driving it. Maybe will that will that change not only in residential spaces but also in public spaces, professional spaces.
1: I think it's better that it's not architects answering that. I think it's better that it comes from the non-architects because that's who's going to be living in the places and who architects should be designing for. I think a lot of times an architect's take it upon themselves to design the new reality and to, Create new paradigms. A lot of times, those
5: experiments fail with or without the architects knowing it. I mean, make perfect sense. I mean, my apartment gets really great light. I found myself thinking, entire thing. I, I wouldn't be able to do quarantine in New York if I lived in a basement apartment that got no light. My mental health would take a true hit. Although, if I had a garden apartment, oh my gosh, those gotta be the best, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I I've been thinking about this because I I represented a garden apartment in the West village last summer, which was it was a beautiful Florence room that had a it had a garden and a woodworking finder place in the kitchen. It was the original kitchen of the, the eighteen thirty townhouse. It was really, really cool. But it the rooms got relatively little light, which is consistent with garden apartments in general. The the positive was that you had the outdoor space on what's 11th between you know fourth and weaker but the but the rest of the apartment was honestly rather dark and i i caught myself thinking multiple times oh what i what i want to be what i want the the garden or and i have i always arrive at no i want the taller ceilings and the better the better daylight you can't go out in the garden on a rainy day, but yesterday right. while it was rainy and horrible in New York, our have still got night light throughout, throughout the day, which was a mood boot. But
1: I, I think it makes sense. So, well, I had another question, but it was more about, I mean, everyone can kind of self identify as one or the other, a classicist or a modernist, or maybe neither, or maybe an in-between, or maybe an anarchist. I don't know what else it would be, but, if whatever you self-identify as, if you're a classicist, if you're a modernist, what's one thing you think with the current popular thinking of your paradigm that you think everyone is getting totally wrong? So if you're a classicist, what are they getting totally wrong? If you're a modernist, what are they getting totally wrong? Maybe there's something glaring that sticks out to you.
8: I'm if you're away from classical and modern because I actually think they don't really exist anymore. But I do think we're done with plastic. And maybe we'll see more copper. And I don't mean...
1: Copper everything for uh, yeah. sanitation?
8: Yeah, copper everything. I like that. But I do think, I mean, in terms of truly an vernacular building technologies and never so keen to use the, the term biophilia, but there are inerrant stakes. Some of the conversation around all of that, COVID, is sort of under some of that. I'm optimistic that we might be a bit more responsible and there might be a broader awareness that you can sort of awaken out of all this in terms of what we want to be making buildings out of um, and what we want to be touching. I actually don't really like the word traditional anymore, but some of these things that we have a body of information and ritual around using actually end up being better for us as human beings, sometimes healthier. So people are building modern buildings, So people are building classical buildings, but to be a modernist or a classicist feels... I don't know, I have to get out of shape, but I, I don't know. That's a little heavy and maybe I'm alienating people. I don't know. I am about- I think
5: it's <laughs> just heavy enough. I mean, I think I
2: can speak from, you know, my personal experience and that here, I'll open up a little bit. I mean, I was rooted in, in a deeply sort of material driven practice for so long and educated in, in whatever you consider their work to be, but certainly it's of today and, and has references of. Corbusier and Alto, and, and really the masters of modernism. And I think it was horrifying to them when I started playing around with holdings. But I think that so many people, and certainly our clients, respond to both. And so I think that furthers the point of what you were saying, that it's hard to be in one side, wear that hat or that hat. But I think it's really interesting to be able to, to wear both at the same time because um, certainly they can inform one another. But also, I think if the people that are in the building are responding to those two different thoughts at the same time. That makes a really, really interesting, you know, voice. So I'm with you. I think certainly you have people that seemingly from my perspective, though, I was never trained in that regard and pure classicism or I was making an, you know, building that looks like ancient Rome or Greece. And, and certainly that's one thing, but I think at the same time, I think the plurality is really, really interesting.
6: I think it's more of a way on how you approach design. I find it more as something kind of a like school of thought, like the way you were trained, kind of like you were saying, Brent. I guess as an approach on how you work, I don't think I would, I would necessarily use tags or identify people as classicists or modernists. I think it's just a matter of how you approach things. And from a personal level, Kind of being honest with myself, if a client comes to me and asks for a very modern house, like a super hyper-modernist house, I'm going to flat out say, I'm not the right architect for you. I think it's just a matter of approach and honesty in like your own design comfort capabilities.
5: It does seem like more
4: of a, a gradient where there are two opposite ends of the spectrum. And I think that it, yes, you can fall into either that modernist hard modernist or hard traditionalist or classicist but at the end of the day like you you are going to respond to the client's needs you're going to be receptive if it if they're asking for something that you you don't specialize in or you you can't really deliver on i think that you communicate that to them and and you say i'm not the right fit but I, I kind of agreed that the two don't really exist. And the reason I'm saying that is I've been working for the past, I don't know, four years on the townhouse. And it's, at the end of the day, it's a 200-year-old townhouse that got almost completely demolished and rebuilt. If we rebuilt that as a traditional house, would I call that a classical house? I mean, it's, it's got the of steel in it. it. There's always this question of, there's a question of honesty and a a question of, is it just the style? Is it just, you're describing the paint color of it? Where that, we're sort of in this new paradigm where you don't really have a choice to ignore technology anymore. The main energy code will require you to do certain things that you traditionally would have never done. In
1: some way, we're, we're always having to adapt to the client's needs and we're always going to deliver a product that the client is happy with and that they're going to live the way that they see is the best. And I do think that's of the utmost importance. And we should leverage all the technology that we have around us to do that. But in another way, traditionalism is that classicism. When you do that, is that really operating in the true way of what the word means or is building with only traditional materials and only load-bearing brick and um, wood framing and not violating what any of those systems can do? Is that traditionalism? Is that pure, pure classicism? So that would be that anecdote, I think but I sort of disagree with you. I think that classicism and modernism definitely exist. I think that they just are on opposite ends of the spectrum. And I think that most people operate somewhere in the middle. I think they're not as well operated in. I think it's, they're there and they're not as purely done as they once were in the way I sort of mentioned, but I think they're definitely still there.
8: How do you reconcile then the kinds of practices that do very good very good classical buildings that create very formal modernist buildings. I mean, to me, I, I find it not my area of expertise, truly, but I don't think it's just one line that we're operating on. I think there's actually probably, there's at least two dimensions, formal versus enigmatic versus the vernacular, right? And that's something that men, much smarter than me, have spoken about. lot Is that vector, and then there's the vector of context in terms of where Temporally, a building or a project finds itself a whole spectrum of times related to something next to it, I'm trying to tell some story about i don't know what, some narrative of something or an institution that's being built for no so the, the physical context is the context of the site I, I think we have there's i don't think it's quite as simple as classical and modernist, and mean, there might be some practices or architects who are more yeah, you know, I definitely agree with that classical and traditional are also very different I mean the classical speaks to something that is this can be totally separate from traditional practices building totally can be and classical in the western definition i think differs quite a bit from classical in the eastern tradition and i guess it's not so much that they don't completely totally exist i, I think it's there's, there's more dimension that we're all sort of existing a lot that one might veer towards the classical or towards modernist approach even though i do believe the early modernists were actually fundamentally right. like great, talented classicists. Um,
1: they 100% were, the first generation. That's why they were so great. Have you
2: guys ever seen 20. East Vandero's classical architecture? All of those guys had their first houses, Korb's first houses and Alto's first houses as these kind of collages of different traditional pastiche. until so they were. oh yeah, this is the thing.
3: I think maybe in the professional world, there's a more gray, but I think that in the education world, there isn't as much, and I think that's the issue. And I think there's a lot more anger to <coughs> the academics about it. Neither side wants to be taken over, and I think that's the problem, because, I don't know, I remember I took a summer course at NYIT, and they were horrified that I wanted to draw a building that had four walls, you know What I mean, I think... Then eventually people educate themselves and are in the real world with real clients who want actual buildings that make sense.
6: I think it ties back to the whole school of thought and, and the discipline of training in academia to kind of reinforce what Christina was saying. Because it's a matter of learning the principles correctly and then applying them to architecture, whether it's following the principles strictly or using them a little bit loosely, but they're still there and know them well. So I honestly think that's why the early modernists were great because they knew their stuff. They're, they were disciplined in their design and following certain principles, even if they didn't use a crown molding from the Corinthian.
1: Another recent example in sort of the same vein is Peter Eisenman, where Peter Eisenman sort of famously is the smartest architect that's ever lived. And he knows everything about history, uh, the history of architecture, which is probably true. And he says that the reason why he studied architectural history so much is so that he could break all the rules. Because if you don't know the history you don't know the rules, you can't break the rules. And he chose in his architectural profession or his attempt was that he wanted to design architecture that had never been done or seen before ever. And the only way to do that is to know everything that came before, because how else can you not? Re- in my training at Notre
6: Dame, I think in hindsight, one of the things that, that taught me the most is discipline and not not designing because I feel like it, but there's there has to be some sort of a reason for it. I was in another undergraduate school that was all about finding a rationale for a fair design. I most of the time I could wing it. I didn't really use a very justifiable cause for my design. I feel like at Notre Dame I was kind of forced to back my designs with something that was a little bit more substantial. Not get applause for. Oh, I I came up with this and I was inspired by X. Well, is the X valid? I was never really questioned that when I was being trained in modernism.
8: Were you actually being trained in modernism, real modernism? Or was it just a sort of, again, superfluous sort of somebody took an X ramp off? It It wasn't actual modernism.
1: What do you call real modernism? Modernism Modernism doesn't exist.
8: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) it's
1: a trick question, Rodrigo
8: what I define as modernism is what architectural historians do a much better job than me defining modernism but it absolutely positively is is rooted in principles I think there's been a real spin off of kookadook ideas off of <laughs> everything like relativism <laughs> is real man I'm like everybody can do it. right but really we shouldn't be so so liberal assigning the word modernism to anything that's not traditional
1: that's fair Yeah. yeah, And I totally agree with that. And you look at it today because today's stock of modernist architects that you see, the Bjarke Ingels and the Rem Koolhauses, they weren't classically trained so far as I know. Maybe I'm wrong. I might be wrong, but they were modernly trained, whatever that means, which I think is really just loosely trained in some form of principles, whatever those principles may be. And that's a stark difference from the Mises and the Gropiuses and the Peter Barons and all these first-generation modernists that were really trained classicists, they learned these principles that were tried and true for how to build buildings and create spaces that were harmonious and beautiful. And they chose to take those principles and push them in a different direction. But now you have buildings that are rectangular prisms that you pull up the one corner and it makes a pyramid. And it's, okay, yeah, that's unique. Okay. We got a unique building. And maybe that is All that is necessary nowadays is one gesture and that's it. But that doesn't seem like modernism either. I agree with you.
8: I just, I don't know. And really someone, maybe someone on this call can educate me. I don't know if there's a catch all phrase for.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's contemporary. I would argue that good modernism is a lot harder to do than good classicism. And in in large part, because good classes, uh, classicism, you can hide your mistakes and hide your joints. And you have all these moldings that cover up continuations of planes. But in modernism, everything is exposed. Everything has to be perfect. The construction has to be super tight. A drawing set for a modernist building might be that big. And the construction budget is the same for a classical building where the set is that big because it's a completely different way of building in that regard. I do think, regardless of what the final
0: product looks like, the, going back to that question of whether something's arbitrary or not is something that needs to be better addressed in school in my undergrad which was non-architecture i studied scene design and theater where anything goes there's a, a course that everyone takes their first year called principles of design which is basically a bunch of nonsensical art projects where the prompt is express your mood using only yellow pieces of paper or something that it is meant to get you to think out of the box and express an attitude, but is at the end of the day the 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 purpose is more of an art project that it is something practical and I definitely noticed over my four years that you you have to learn how to articulate the reason behind something, at least in the in my program you're you're conveying it was entertainment right you're conveying an attitude. why do you want the sky to be blue? What is that telling you about this? Moment. I think that is lost on a lot of projects, both classical and modern, contemporary, whenever you call it, where you can say, well, this project is expressing an emotion or this project is expressing something other than its purpose. That, the arbitrariness of a typology and, and a purpose and why the building is a bulb or a square, I think, I think that needs to be fleshed out a little bit more. You would get other programs. I was at Carnegie Mellon a few years back, and I I watched a lot of, I looked at a lot of presentations that were pinned up, and the way stuff reads didn't explain the projects. And, And regardless of what it looks like, again, I think you need to be able to articulate what your
1: rationale is a little bit, because it's more than an art project. When I was in school and I was sort of finding my way more towards the classical side of things and other people were going more towards the modern side of things, everyone's finding their own path in Miami, which was a very cool thing that was offered. One of my classmates said to me, I was asking her why she did something. It would look really cool, but why'd you do that? Like, just why? And she's like, you don't always need to ask why. I don't know. I kind of feel like there always should be some rationale as to, as to why you do something, whatever the result is, I think you should have an intention and you should have a goal. And there should always be a reason to ask, why did, why is this door here? Why is that thing there? It's, I, I've sort of tried to never lose sense of asking why. And I felt like that was a, maybe a diversion and maybe how I was thinking more classically at the time to more modernly, but I don't know if anyone feels differently or the same.
5: Well, I think it's, it's risky if you,
4: if you do something without a strong justification, but I also don't think you need a justification for every decision you make. I think, yeah, it's a, that's a very safe way to, for a project to develop, but you miss out on the, the whimsical aspect of it, the fun aspect of it, where if you do things just because it looks better, because there's some other things. Yeah, it can be a total and utter failure, but maybe sometimes not. And I think that's the that's part of why you would want to you would want to explore that. And it's not it's not because you think you're you're going to reach some conclusion that's going to be black and white. Yeah, this is the absolute. I did this whole exercise and I figured out this is the only way it can work. It's more of, oh well, I did all of this research and here's what I think. And I think, yeah, it could go a different way, but I want it to go this way. It's not always as black and white and clear cut as certain things. Of course there are black and white and clear cut, but I think there is room for exploration and that's what architecture is all about. It's it's about this, this sort of seeing what works, sort of, I don't know, researching and exploring and testing things and finding out what doesn't work and what works. I think there was this moment, and I don't know, I was in
2: Mexico City last year, we saw Louis Bear got his work, and I think there was a point in the middle of his career where he did something, and it seemed at that moment he knew that he had created a new architecture, that he created something that hadn't been done before. But it took him a long time to get there, and then he, he was smart enough to recognize that he had created that, and then he became his own editor, and he pushed it forward. And I think that's why people, hopefully, I hope that's why people like Blarkley are taking risks and you know, t- doing those things that I think are, are, are certainly unique and different, but hopefully they're headed in a, in a search for something that has some longevity to it.
1: hopefully they're as introspective.
2: Yeah, that would, that would be
0: helpful too. <laughs> and certainly if you're not taking risks, right, if you're not progressing, with new technology and everything else, you're never going to advance and try new things. You can look all the way back to the Duomo, right. With new technology to, to make a dome and today with new materials are we going to have something that's more efficient or not well we don't know until we experiment with it
3: and i was just gonna say earlier that design art it's also about taste and as an architect you do have your own voice and you can do something if you think it looks better An artist can paint something however they want so i think that as much as we all have rationale, we also have trained our eyes enough that sometimes you don't know why it looks better, but it does. And that's a good enough answer. And maybe the bad architects don't realize that this is
5: <laughs> what's I
2: think uh, recently I was reminded of something along those regards that we're doing a very, very simple apartment in Manhattan with lots of little reveals and things like that. and You think about it systematically and you put your finger in a reveal and you need to trace it around an entire apartment and it needs to come back essentially to where you started. And that rule needed to break down. And for some reason in my head I was I was being really stubborn about it. And the contractor looked at me and said, architecture is a visual art. And I think that so many architects, we all lose sight of that. That when you when you look at it and we're all in a lot of schools, you're trained to think so abstractly. But if you step back from that and you really look at something and you say, which feels better, which looks better. And whether it's a modern building or a classical building, I think that those are things that—that's one of our, my personal gripes with academia. And you go to you sit on a jury at Yale, you go to sit on a jury at Harvard. I think that the idea of even constructing something is is a pejorative, and the people who are actually making things is—it's a struggle for for the academic side of our profession to kind of come around to the the idea that that's even something is necessary to push to push the profession forward. And so going back to the modern or classical viewpoint of things, I think that that's my personal biggest gripe is kind of as an umbrella over all of those that you guys are all people that are making things. Maybe that was a given in your lives and your education, but I feel like with so many other architects that that's not a priority. And I think that that's bigger than the, than like classical versus modern. I think that that idea of construction and practice and Pushing all of those things in forward tandem, what, no matter what it looks like, it's something that's, and craft is something that's really critical to all of, all of what we're, it seems what we're doing that isn't really taught in schools. It
1: happens on both sides too. I mean, the Leon Creer famously said he's an architect because he doesn't build anything because he only designs and, I added, oh, all right. I mean, I feel like there used to not be architects. It used to, used to be builders architect builders and they've only built the master builder and brunelleschi designed and built the dome and it's yeah it's a totally different mindset and it's been separated apart so much that's the in some ways that's the completion of that arc is to fully not build at all and i think in a lot of ways that's kind of dangerous because that totally devoids yourself from the the essence of the craft that's a great point yeah i i I really
2: love that point actually i mean when I'm trying to do something, one of the first places that I'll go is like those, those GC websites. Here's, here's how I did the stucco wrong and it. So that t- that's how you learn how to do stucco details, so, right? Yeah. It's
1: like- <laughs> and as an architects, we never build anything. We're so, we're so separated from the building side of things that you have to... I, I watched YouTube videos for 45 minutes a couple of years ago on how to build fireplaces because I've drawn so many fireplaces in my life and I have literally no idea how they're built. And it's like I need to watch some guy put bricks on top of each other in Omaha on how to build a fireplace because I have literally no idea how they're built. And it's that's insane.
5: How, how, how can you draw a
1: fireplace if you don't know how they're built? I think the way we get away with it in a lot of ways is that I've never seen this done because I'm not on job sites, but I'm pretty sure Masons pick up our fireplace drawings and they look at it and they say, I understand the intent. I understand where it's got to go. They drew it totally wrong. I'm going to build it totally right
2: and to code. And it basically is fine. I think the conversation, I, I, mean, it's, I think if you go to it, I think that people, when they look at drawings, the people that make things, I think that they know as, which architect, I think they do, they, who they can have the conversation with and who they can't have the conversation with. By the who, drawings. By the drawing, and I think they will engage that person. So if, if you don't know those fireplace details as an architect, then maybe you don't fully detail it out because, I mean, you're learning while you're doing it, so that's an important thing. But the person that's really teaching you is the person who's making that, and so it's really important to stand next to that person as they're doing it, or at least show up once a week. But I think it's important that I've seen a lot of young architects start drawing that fireplace. Shelley's is the greatest mason on any job site, and go listen to Shelley and ask her questions. And then, then you will learn. And you don't learn that at school. And that's that's the one of the biggest, the hardest things of our profession is that, again, style aside, how do you learn how to do it? Having architects being more tied to the construction profession,
6: that can, in the long term, get rid of architecture art projects and therefore really crappy architecture. Because it kind of weeds out the artists maybe architects. Because an artist will draw up something and whatever he he or she feels like drawing uh or painting convey emotion it doesn't really have to be built it can be as ugly as you want to live in somebody else's living room you're never going to see it as an architect you're forcing everybody who passes along to actually see it and worst case scenario live in it so as an architect being tied to actual construction principles and being able to draw up something that can be buildable without having to spend an enormous amount of money trying to come up with you know, ways to tilt the wall forty five degrees for no reason, I think that might help. Might help the built environment in general.
3: You guys like the Oculus?
1: I like. Who likes the Oculus? I like the Oculus. Or, Which one is the, the Oculus? the The World Trade Center, the Coltrava. Most black up in,
8: in New York City in the last century.
6: I still like the Oculus. I'm not going to lie. Lily, really, I want to hear
0: what qualifications make it the most classical building in the last century.
8: Well, I use it chiefly as a trolling device for <laughs> the critique of proponents of classical architecture that I've reduced to just being fans of classical ornament because I think it's about much deeper things than symmetrism and eggs and tarts. But it's symmetrical. There's formal ordering to the parts of the building. Notwithstanding the terrible entry and that you don't know where it is, and it's kind of a confusing thing. Its forms are are based on forms and shapes and geometries that we find in nature. So, really, those two, but it chiefly, is a, is a trolling device to sort of
0: it's structural. An exp- it's an impressive great. volume in the center. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
8: In the grand civic space. blah, of that. But I, I, I mean, really, because I, am I have an allergic reaction to, the classical, equating to, classical ornament and motifs.
0: I think that gets to a larger question, though, is how do you define classicism? How do you define modernism? It's sort of a theme that has carried some of this conversation. And a lot of people, contemporary to their peers, have a hard time articulating what makes today different than two, two days ago, but it's easier to contrast it with something from 50 years ago. It's harder to express recent changes, it seems, or recent Separations.
8: Well, I'm, a, I'm a proponent of a sort of big tent philosophy because I think politically to sort of reject and deny anything that is not like covered in classical ornament as being not classical, I think does mm-hmm. have a disservice because um, I think architecture has uh, a pretty serious obligation to, to the public. And I think that a lot of the principles and fundamentals inerrant and a classical foundation in terms of architectural education serves that really well. Not always necessarily like a classical manifestation of a building. And I think sometimes we fall into habits where uh, it becomes apparent to someone who loves classical architecture. It becomes apparent to me that sometimes the argument for classical architecture seems one that is merely surface deep, that we're doing ourselves more of a disservice in being the comments of classical architecture. That if I feel this way or I can perceive things this way, my gosh, the rest of the academy and, and certainly the public. Perceive of those who uh, believe in classical architecture to be those who love the past and have a certain installment. It's it's mostly a political and it's a branding thing, actually.
6: Um, But I think you do bring up a good point that thinking about what we were saying 30 seconds earlier, it's healthy then for practicing architects to be immersed in academia to prevent that sort of oh, what will the academy think? Because if your academy is composed of people that are out yeah. there in the real world dealing with real problems, real modern materials, yeah. then you don't necessarily stick to this purist bubble type architectural theory.
8: Yeah, I agree with that. Totally and completely.
1: Yeah. More, more people in academia built things. via a different landscape for sure. The big tent idea though, Willie, is the, I think it's something we've talked about before about what Andre Stuani is trying to do with heterodox architectonic, where he's trying to claim under the umbrella of, he's claiming under classicism, what a lot of modernists have done over the last 100 years. And he's taking modernist columnar systems and breaking them down into head, body and feet and turning it into a classical ordering system, which it really is when you break down some of these buildings. I mean, they are, you can, if you can find the head the body and the, the feet, like Louis Sullivan said, I mean, a lot of that is the basis of a classical building. So I think trying to yeah, claim that, that big tent philosophy rather than breaking things down to one side or the other, I think, I think that could be helpful if heterodoxia ever comes out, which it probably will never. I don't know if anyone really, maybe not everyone is familiar with it, but best. heterodoxia architectonica is something that Andres Duane was working on as a book concept. He was basically doing lots of sketchup models of historic modernist buildings and doing parallels of orders, but with modern columns. So he might have uh, a Mies van der Rohe column, which is a cruciform shape with a little uh, recess at the top and the bottom, but he compared to whatever, whatever other columns you might have. But he, theoretically, when I, when I entered a DPZ, he was working on it feverishly. And theoretically, it's still in the works, but it's been eight or 10 years at this point. So at some point, maybe it'll come out. I mean, the guy produces prolifically so who knows but
2: i'm hoping for it i I was i was starting to articulate i I, since we have a little more time on our hands um these days i was curious if there's any sort of surprise outlets or people or inspiration that people have right now that you're all digging deep in the internet every day you're all maybe reading books you're all doing those types of things is there something that stood out to you recently that's been surprising or you said, oh, that's somebody's work that I wasn't paying attention to or that I should be paying more attention to or something like that.
0: I, I'm without my libraries. I have a lot of books at home or in New York and then in my office. And so it's, it's a little weird being at work during the day, not being able to reference some of that. And so I, I don't really have a direct answer to your question, but I think in that void, I've tried to do a lot of other things that I don't normally get to do. Instead of watching TV, I picked up a few other hobbies. And so it's kind of nice to have your brain relax and think about things that are not architecture 24-7, which I imagine I'm speaking for most of us (laughs) is the case. I think that's as valuable, that sort of refresh, as as looking for new sources. I don't have too much online, though, that I've really used to fill fill the void.
2: I'd almost say the flip, what's been really interesting, has been... Being around my old books all the time <laughs> and, and picking those up and I was trying to find some kind of reference and I was like, oh, I should look up this. I'll, I'll pick up my old Kevin Bacon's dad book.
5: <laughs> Ed Bacon. Kevin has references and his graphics. I've been focusing a lot on Instagram accounts of people that are restoring specifically British country houses. <laughs> 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 but the which yeah it does seem very niche but they don't have fabulous budgets i mean they're, they're i think they're they have sizable budgets but but they're going about it themselves i know meets are they hiring an architect hiring a contractor having somebody else do it but they love the pursuit of actually restoring the house themselves and i feel i've been really focused on I mean, i'm already a, a nester like i always loved creating a that I love to be in. But now it's, I'm in hyperdrive around that. And so that's kind of what I'm paying most attention to is other people that seem to appreciate that.
1: Yeah, I've been finding more on Instagram because I'm also removed from my library at home, although I'm not sure I would be flipping through old books that I have as much as I'd like to think I would be. Yeah, I've been finding finding new decorators on Instagram that I like or new architects that are maybe not so well established probably that's probably a coy way of saying i've been on instagram way too much and going down <laughs> way too many instagram rabbit holes but what was your answer to the question that you
2: posed that started i've been looking back at uh, uh gunnar Asplin has a uh, there's one there's one 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 monograph on his work and i've studied all the scandinavian modernists in depth and he's one of the last ones for me to really dive into and I think his work for this conversation is really yeah, he's impactful and meaningful. Yep. And there's just not a lot out there on, on his work. And he didn't do a massive amount of work, but it's, yeah. it's really inspiring stuff. And in terms of specific architects, certainly his work and a lot of Mexican and Portuguese modernism. Mm-hmm. Had, uh, mm-hmm. But there is something about returning back to being able to cut a two by four, which is, uh, you know, pretty primal and pretty inspiring in some in so many ways. Make sure you, you have enough clearance to walk under, because I'm in my childhood bedroom and I have a loft
1: that <laughs> I hit my head on every single night when I go to that <laughs> one. That's pretty Definitely not up to come.
4: Definitely not. Definitely not right. Yeah.
1: Gunnar Asplund, though, is such a perfect nexus of the spectrum from classical to modern. He was in the 20s and the 30s and I'm sure longer than that, but the building that I think of right at that time when there was that shift happening, that real big seismic shift from the traditional to the modern. And he was taking part in it, but he was taking part in it in his own terms. And he was sticking with the traditional forms, but modernizing them and streamlining everything, but keeping all the same pieces intact. And it's such a sweet spot when you look back and, and look at the monumentality of the architecture and, and the crispness of it,
2: thinking about it. Yeah, there's some just incredible scale to all of it. And a real eye for detail and landscape, which is really inspiring.
0: 20 Questions is a production of the Institute for Classical Architecture and Art. To learn more, visit classicist.org where you can find a wide variety of programming, become a member, and learn about our educational initiatives. This episode of Classicism in Conversation was produced by Justin Kegley and me, Kellen Krause, with editing help from Cosette Gobach. If you'd like to help, write to podcast at classicist.org. Classicism in Conversation is sponsored by Historical Concepts. Find them on Instagram at concepts and check out their new book, visions of hope.